Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Happy Father's Day. Uh, Every Father's Day, I uh, wear this is my dad's old uh, Steelers jersey, Mean Joe Green who was playing before I was even a thought. Um, but I wear it every, uh, every Father's Day in honor of him. He died five years ago of prostate cancer. So it's a, it's a fun way to remember him and uh, be thankful for the legacy that he has left me. And now I'm a father and going to be a double father come August. Is that, is that how you say that, double father? Uh, yeah, I get, to keep, I get to keep my girl dad shirt. Uh, I guess I can put an S at the end now, girl dad's. Or girl's dad. <laughs> Didn't think that one through. Girl's dad. Girl dads. Sounds like a band. Um, great intro, Trey. All right, well, uh, we are in the book of Acts. And uh, if you want to turn there, we're going to be in chapter 5. We are, this is the second to last week. Uh, we are not going to go through the whole book of Acts. Many of you, are, I feel like, are having a hankering for the book of Matthew again, which we'll be starting in the fall again. Uh, if you are new with us and you're like, what is he talking about? We've been, we were going through Matthew for like 50-some weeks, and we're going to be continuing in the fall. Uh, however, before then, in the summer, we're going to be going through the seven churches in Revelation. So if you've ever wanted to be at a church that talks about Revelation, you've, we've done it. We're going to do it. So my sister will actually be kicking off that series, so I'm very excited for that. Uh, not Allison, Hannah, sorry. <laughs> you never know, one of these days, right, one of these days. Um, but we've been at this point where uh, we've just kind of seen the early church blossom. And that's what the book of Acts is all about. It's written by Luke. So Luke tells the story of Jesus, and then he tells the story about Jesus' spirit as he ascends, the Holy Spirit given to common people to do extraordinary things. And, uh, you know, there's been some ups and downs, right? Uh, we're looking at a church that was started as 150 within a few weeks is now set, uh, probably over 10,000. Um, and uh, some of them are... Uh, risking persecution, death, all that good stuff from Rome. And uh, we're at this, this crux now where, um, unfortunately, there's going to start to be some problems. And most people don't realize that in the book of Acts. They, they read the first few chapters like, let's live like that. And then they don't realize there's like seven chapters of the problems of them living like that. And uh, we're going to start talking about some of those things because, uh, you know, I don't know if you've heard this said, but if you go to a church and it's absolutely perfect, you should run away. Because the church is not perfect. It's full of imperfect people. And, uh, and we're going to see this in the book of Acts in chapter 5. If you, uh, you want to turn there, like I said, we're going we're to be there. I, I want to pinpoint, though, we're going to be talking about two people whose, stories, uh, whose story does not go very well. It's actually kind of a pretty wild story um, if you've read it. But there's one verse in particular that I want to pinpoint. I'm going to have you just look at it because it's going to be kind of the central theme of everything we're talking about today. Uh, and it is centered around this question. You read the book of Acts, and, and you're reading through it, and you're, you're trying to figure out, okay, here's all these people that believe in Jesus, and, and here's what's going on, and here's their movement. What I find so fascinating is what is the outside perspective of what is going on here? Like, they're, they're in Jerusalem, a town of fifty to 100,000 people, not that big. All of a sudden, these... From the outside, it almost looks like these, these specific Jews are, are, are going a different way, and, and they're doing weird things. And we actually have historical accounts of Pliny the Younger, who was uh, a part of Rome at the time, a few hundred years later, 
journaling about these Christians and how he just thought it was so weird. They do this thing where they, they go into homes and they, they eat the blood and body of, of someone who died a long time ago. Like, just very confused. And, and they, they pay off their debts and, and they're kind to everyone. And, and he's just like rattling his, and he's writing to a higher up guy being like, what do I do about this? You know, typically the response is, well, just punish him more. You know, sub, sub, subjugate him into submission. That's Rome. That's their strategy for everything. Uh, but the, these people on the outside is like they have such a unique posture of who, like, who are these Christians and what do they mean in my life? And I love that tension in that place because I, I think very much so today, I love to ask the same question. What do people actually think about Christians? What do people think about Contrast Church? What do people think about you and your own life in light of following Jesus? And, and I was thinking about the different things that people think about, you know, what was their reaction to these people? Uh, you know, I think, were they, were they super nice? Were they truth-speaking, blunt intellectuals? Were they tolerant of everyone? Were they intolerant of the culture? Were they generous or were they frugal or stingy? Were they loving? Were they exclusive? Were they political doormats or were they zealots? Were they rebels? Were they crazy or were they normal? You know, these are all the thoughts we think about. Like, what was people's perception of these Christians, these first-century Christians at the time? And the only reaction that we really see in the book of Acts, and I think it's one of the most powerful ones we see, is verse 13. So if you're, in, you're looking at chapter 5, you go down to verse 13. It says this. It says, None of the rest dared to join them, but people held them in high honor. So my version says, your version might say, held them in high esteem, spoke well of them, had high regard for them. And... Uh, there's this kind of tension that we see. And what it is here is, it's almost like the best way to describe it is they fear them, but they also have a high amount of honor for them. Now, we think of fear just kind of objectively like you're afraid of something. Fear in this culture was not that. It was more like reverence, respect, right? You fear someone, you respect them and their capability, their ability to whatever, right? So when it says fear God, it doesn't mean like be afraid, like terrified, but it means like be, be showing reverence to his power, his his sovereignty, all of that, right? So they're fearing them in kind of the same way. And, and what's interesting here is, you know, do we get a similar reaction in our world today, right? I was thinking about if I was to, if I was to paint this reality for someone who thought that, it would look like, I, I wrote this out like a monologue. You know, if someone was like, the people say about us, man, I'm not joining contrast because they're a little crazy and radical and super dedicated to this Jesus guy. But I'll tell you what, I love and respect them. They have their truth-seeking, their integrity-filled, they're generous. I can't quite wrap my brain around it, but I like being around them. I can only speak well of them because they only seem to produce good fruit. They feed and care of the marginalized. They are some of the most generous, hospitable people I know. They have integrity behind their words and financial dealings. They love and pray for those who are their enemies. They prioritize rest, slowing down and Sabbath to their God. They'll do anything it takes to love their spouses, their families. They don't allow for anyone to slander or gossip about others. They're immensely vulnerable, all while still acknowledging their own weaknesses and shortcomings. They also won't stop praying for me, which I cannot understand why someone would spend time hoping blessing for me. If I'm honest, I want all of that to continue, but I don't know if I want to be a part of that. It seems like too much. How does that sound? Pretty interesting? Do people say that about us? people say that about Christians? I don't, I don't think so. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know about what circles you're in. I don't think so. I, I think that sometimes people think we're weird. But I don't think they're like, they're like amazing though. They're just, you know, one of the things that when we moved to Grandview uh, was, my, was our part of our strategy of, of moving into an area that we didn't really have a lot of connections with, they didn't really know very well, pretty antagonistic to the gospel. I, I took this idea and I was like, I, I took the phrase, I'm just like, we're just going to kill them with kindness. Like, how can we love people 
in such a way that even if they don't agree with what we're doing, we have honor among the community. We have favor among the community. And we're still trying to do that um, today, and we do that in lots of different ways. But this idea of, like, do, do people see Christians like this? Do people see you like this? Like, all that list, right? Caring for the marginalized, being hospitable, being honest, having integrity, loving our enemies, praying for those. Like, do people see that, or do they just see our, our intense, reactive Facebook posts? Or are like super just rough bumper stickers, you know, or, or whatever, right? Like what, what do they actually see? And, and a lot of that, th- this verse and this reality of what they see has to do with what occurs in this, in this passage we're going to read. And I say that because it sets it up for this is a really hard passage. It's actually a really uncomfy passage. Um, but if we keep this in mind, at what point did they get to this place where people almost revered and respected them and showed honor, but also like, man, I don't know if I want to be a part of that. Like, that is something wild, and I don't know if I want to do that. And so it starts off with this moment of dishonor, and and we're going to turn there. So if you're at chapter 5, I want to give you the quick update of what's going on here. Peter had, uh, Peter and and, uh, John had been jailed. They get out of jail, or they've been jailed. The Pharisees and the leaders tell them, hey, you can't be sharing the gospel anymore. And they're like, we're going to do what God tells us to do. And so they say, well, don't do it. And then they throw them out. And then they go and they, they tell the believers and they pray for boldness. They pray that God would continue to do what he would do and that they could be a part of that and have the boldness to step into that. Well, after that, we see this really cool passage where it says in verse 32, right before chapter 5, uh, the group of those who believed they were of one heart and one mind. No one said any of his possessions were his own. They held everything in common. And with great power, they were given testimony of the resurrection. There was no one needy among them because those who were owners of land or houses were selling them, bringing them to the apostles' feet. Uh, Joseph Levite, who was native of Cyprus, called by the apostles Barnabas, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and placed it at the apostles' feet. Wow, this is just this beautiful, radical community. Amazing. But wait, chapter 5, not amazing. Something bad happens. And in this moment, we see this like weird... You, you get like you get like shivers of communism or socialism where you're like everybody just put everything together and but it's not what's happening in fact if you read the book of acts this idea actually becomes incredibly unwise in fact in chapter 11 they run out of fields and houses to sell and they run out of money most people don't realize that and they say we should just sell our homes and give all the money it's like okay no like this didn't work actually in the long run it was great for the beginning and people had this true heart of like freedom in christ like i want to give everything away right Nobody was making them do that. Nobody was asking them to do that. They were just deciding, hey, I have all this stuff. I'm seeing that my brother's in need, and I'm just going to do what I can to help with that. And so we see this little illustration. Joseph did it. Amazing, right? Now, chapter 5, we get into the meat here. However, there was a man named Ananias, together with Sapphira, his wife, sold a piece of property. He kept back for himself part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge. He brought only part of it and placed it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds from the sale of the land? Before it was sold, did it not belong to you? And when it was sold, was not the money at your own disposal? How have you thought up this deed in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. Pretty intense line there. What's even more intense, the next verse, when Ananias heard these words, he collapsed and died. And great fear gripped over all who heard about it. So the young men came, wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. And after an interval, about three hours, his wife came in. She did not know what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me, were the two of you paid this amount for the land? 
Sapphira said, yes, that much. Peter then told her, why have you agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. At once she collapsed at his feet and died. So when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the whole church and all who heard about these things. I would add, in contrast, church gripped in fear as how they thought about ways they've been withholding from God, right? <laughs> it's a hard passage. Uh, you got a lot of good stuff going on, and then all of a sudden you have two people who literally die because of this deceiving of the Spirit. And, and um, you got a lot of red flags in your brain, right? Like, wait a second. Jesus is not like, I don't think he'd be a fan of that. And like, wait, why doesn't that happen today? I know I've had some, you know, I've lied about some financial dealings. I haven't been struck down or died, right? Or I don't know other people that have. This is not a consistent trend in churches of people just keeling over dead because they lied about how much they gave, right? Um, so you have a lot of like, this is just a very messy passage. It almost feels like a complete 180 from what was going on in the book of Acts, right? And it is, and I'm not going to acknowledge that. In fact, I'm going to acknowledge that. One commentator wrote, as tempted as it might be to push this story into some dark corner of the early church history, that would be a tragic mistake. It deals with money, greed, and deceit, all very popular problems in today's church. Deceit, disunity, and duplicity always undermine the Holy Spirit's work and always erode the effectiveness of the Christian community. So in one way, I'm like, yeah, let's just read it and move on, you know? Like Father's Day, come on, let's just... Read it, move on, eat some hot dogs, right? Um, but on the other hand, I'm like, no, like, this is incredibly important, and you're going to figure that out. But the, the tension at the beginning is, man, what is happening here? Like, what kind of God does this? Uh, the God that just, like, was there for the one, the lame man, and healed him, who was there for Peter when he spoke to thousands, and thousands came to know God is love. Like, what kind of God does this? It seems like he's bipolar. Like, what is going on? And, and that's the question we have to ask ourselves, and and like I said, you ask, why doesn't this happen now, right? I, I was, I was uh, joking. I was like, if the IRS had this deal with God, then uh, there wouldn't even need to be need for auditing, right? Because uh, you couldn't lie about your taxes anymore. But it's, it's this world where, like, that, that was the reality of what occurred to them. All the people in the church are like, if that just happened to them, like, I think fear would grip all of us, right? It's a very true reality to us. And so let me explain. I want to explain what's going on here. I want to explain some background. I'm going to give you as much info as I know about this story to give you the best understanding. And then I want to move on from that. Basically, what they're doing here is that the primary thing, and Peter says it, Peter is not killing them. They're not like stabbing them or whatever, right? They are dying because they lied to God. It says, you did not deceive man, but God. Really, they deceived both. But they, they are, the, the sin is against God. Basically, what he's doing, he's saying, well, I'm all in God, but, you know, if things don't pan out, I want some money on the side in an offshore account just in case things get crazy. You know what I mean? And what's fascinating about this is, like, they literally sold their land for the church. Like, they didn't have to do that. They already gave whatever, 90% to the church. And many of us would not even sell our house right now to give it to the church. So let alone 10%, let alone 90%. So it's, it's wild to think, like, these two, like, did do some pretty radical work for God. Like, they literally sold land, whether they had tons of land or whatever, and gave almost all of it to the feet of the apostles, right? And so the, the, the work itself is not the problem. It's, it's lying and deceiving in light of that. I think it's interesting that this, the passage before this is Joseph, right, who gave... The, the proceeds to the apostles' feet, it's kind of like he's setting the bar, right? 
And then Ananias and Sapphira are like, oh, we need, you know, we need to be like that, but like, we're not fully in. So let's like hide some and we'll appear as though we're incredibly generous, right? We'll be just like this Barabbas guy or Barnabas guy. Um, and, and then, you know, people think we're great in the church and it's the culture and the community, right? I don't know if you ever felt that in churches where you're in this culture and you're like, well, I guess this is the culture. Like I, I better fit in. Like I better do these things or I better run at that pace till I figure it out or till I feel something. And in the same way, the early church was incredibly like still aware of all of that, right? Like you see this guy, you want to be like him. You just sell this deal, but you have this heart motivation behind you that is like, I truly don't trust this hundred percent. And because I don't, I'm going to lie about it and not be honest. Now, I don't know what would have happened had they been like, hey, here's 80%. Like, we're keeping 20. We're just not fully in. I don't know what would have happened. Maybe it would been like, wow, you guys are honest. We appreciate that. Or maybe it would have been like, no, sorry, like, you're not fully in. You're not in. I don't know. We don't know. You can only speculate. But what we do know is that they lied saying that was, that was all of it. Yeah, that was the price we got from the land. And they're hiding something back. Now, some commentators argue about how he actually died. They're like, one commentator wrote, He's trying to lighten the blow of the death. And he's like, well, maybe Ananias died of shock of discovery, right? Like that he was found out and there's all these people watching. Because everybody would watch you lay stuff at the feet. It was like you were giving publicly. They would see it. And he's like, maybe he died because like he just got caught and like there's tons of people around. And he just like had a panic attack and just died, you know, cardiac arrest, dead. And maybe, you know, I don't know, his wife, I don't think that, the, the odds of it both happening to both of them is a little wild, but um, but at the end of the day, he dies, right? He falls over, and it's because of his sin. The, the reason why he dies is because of his sin. We don't know the, the physical reason, right? But he falls over, and he dies. His wife, basically, the same thing. And I, I love how one commentator wrote about the tension of this. He says, this is the ultimate discipline in the church, obviously, like this death, right? And he says, God can remove a spiritual cancer by surgery, and may very well choose to do so on some occasions. In this case, the death resulted from sin. But the Bible reminds us that immediate death does not always occur. And he talks about this, this, this passage in, in John 9 where the disciples have this blind man. And they assume that he's blind because of his sin. Similar to how we talked about a couple weeks ago. The lame man, oh, they would assume, oh, he's, blind, he's lame because his parents did something. Like generational sin. They, they did something wrong. He sinned. He did something wrong with God. That's why he's lame. And they assume the same thing of the blind man. And Jesus says, actually, no. He says, neither. It's not his sin of his nor his parents. This happens so the work of God might be displayed in his life. And the commentator says, God sees what happens in our hearts. And when hidden sin threatens to thwart the church's ministry, he may choose to deal with it severely. Now, I still don't feel good about it. I'm like, I don't know. That's not, I don't feel great, right? I'm still asking the question, and you're asking the question, is what? Is what they did really necessary to deserve death, right? Is that anybody else have that question? Anybody else? Is what they did really deserving of death? Because you're like, because I'd be dead a lot of times, right? You're like starting to feel sweaty, like, and uh, and and I'm still asking that question myself. So then I then I realized, okay, there's this parallel in Joshua seven. We're not going to turn there because I got a lot of content I want to get through. But Joshua seven, the story of Achan. If you've ever heard of him, probably not, but. Uh, uh, Joshua and the Israelites, the story of Jericho. Maybe you've heard of that. They, they walk around the walls, blow the trumpets, seven days. God says, hey, when you do this, when it, when it falls, when you win, I want all the spoils. He made it very clear. I want all the spoils. If you don't give me all the spoils, uh, I forget his exact phrasing, but basically bad things will happen. Oh, the camp will be subject to annihilation and cause a disaster. Very clear. They go in, they, the walls fall, we know the story. Achan and his men of his like platoon or whatever, 
They steal a bunch of gold, and they put it under their tent. They're literally sleeping on their, their wealth, right? And just come on. It's like, right? He said it. It was very clear. And so he does that. All of a sudden, the Israelites go out to the, go this other reconnaissance mission, and they just get pummeled. They come back, and Joshua's like, what's going on? You know, like, why is this happening? We have so many more people. How do we just get crushed? And he goes before God, and God's like, yeah, you got, you got someone in your camp who's, who totally broke the law and lied. And so then he, uh, he asks all these different people. They find out it's Achan. They, they dig up this treasure underneath his tent. They kill, they stone him and all the people who participated in that. It's a similar story. In fact, Luke, who writes Acts, uses the exact same Greek phrase, uh, kept back. He uses the Greek phrase, kept back, that would be Greek, that would be the word for the Hebrew kept back in the story of Achan. So he's, he's drawing on this parallel here, and he's, he's writing about this. And what, what's interesting about Luke and the way that he writes this is he actually cares less, it seems like, about the death of them and more about the reality of the Holy Spirit's presence in the church. What I mean by that is he highlights more of the impact of the Holy Spirit in light of that than he does actually about the deaths, which is very interesting. And, and I think what's really going on here is... I think Luke is trying to show us like the weight and the depth of sin. Now, I don't have a great answer for why this logically doesn't happen anymore. We know it doesn't. Um, but in a lot of ways, there's a lot of things in Acts that we see don't necessarily happen exactly anymore, but there's a beauty and a symbolism behind them that we pull from. And in this specific story, Ananias wants to gain reputation. He wants to deceive the community. But, but Paul, Peter says, hey, you didn't just deceive people. You deceived the Holy Spirit. You deceive the life-giving power who created this community, who, who has been in the work of our hearts the last few weeks, and it's caused, like, really, really awesome things. And what's interesting here is when Luke mentions this, this idea of kept back, and he's kind of pointing at uh, the heart of deceiving, Paul, Apostle Paul later in the book of, in the New Testament, mentions this idea of our, our, our hearts being a temple of God. Maybe you've heard that. Our bodies are a temple of God. We should treat them like that and take good care of them. Stewardship, whether it's purity or whether it's just physical, like working out, eating healthy, all that stuff, right? Our body's a temple. And it says, uh, Paul says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy in that temple you are. And, and so he's, Luke's kind of begging out this narrative of like, okay, God in, God in the Old Testament with Achan purges this sin from their community. And after that, actually, the annihilation, the disaster, all that goes away, right? Like the, the cursing that they had had, they lose, lost that battle. It all goes away. Everything's essentially good again, right? Now we have, again, the new church. There's this evil that's causing deception among the Holy Spirit in the community, and God purges that out. And then Paul gives us this theology of our bodies in the future of the temple, that, that we must purge out the things that, are, that are, are desecrating God's place in our hearts and our souls. And I, I, if you follow that trajectory, like, you get to the point where you realize, like, okay, if, if, if sin truly is, the wages of, of sin is death, like, what does that actually look like? We're getting to see an illustration of this throughout the Bible. Now, once again, I still ask the same question. Is what they really did necessary for death, right? Is it really? And like I said, the wages, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Um, and and I, I think I can navigate through this a little bit with nuance, but it still doesn't really get us to the point. But, but we, we talk about the ways of sin is death. It doesn't mean that if I go lie to someone, I am dying, right? We know that to be true. We have all sinned, and we have not immediately fa been faced with death. Um, but in the same way that, that holiness must be fully holy to be holy, right? You can't have 99% holiness. It's not holy. Uh, the same way that is the same, in the same way that sin, if you even have a little bit of sin, tarnishes the entire 
entire reality. And uh, for this specific illustration, I, I use the idea of like, it, it's kind of like smoking, right? If you, let's just say you, you smoke cigarettes your whole life. Let's just say you died of smoking cigarettes. Like it caused something, you died, whatever. The last time you smoked is probably not what killed you. But if you lived your whole life smoking, it led to death. And I think the same way is we can justify little sins here and there and say, oh, it didn't really hurt anyone. A lot of times we do that. Well, it's only like me and God. Like it's not hurting anyone outside. It's not, it's not causing community impact in a negative way. It's not hurting anyone. Like, or it's just one sin here and there. It's not really that big of a deal. But in the same way of smoking, like if we continue on trajectory and we don't take this serious, it will always lead to death. Uh, Adam one time spoke a long time ago uh, about murder, and he said, we're all really not that far away from murder. And a lot of us laughed, and a lot of us chuckled, and we're like, ha-ha, that's funny, but he's not wrong. That Jesus says, even if you're angry with your brother, you're guilty of murder. And you're like, okay, that's pretty severe. Is Jesus also on this camp with God about this severe, like, you know, and, and you start to realize, okay, sin is real, it's serious, it is very insidious in the way that it grows because it acts like nothing and will soon become everything. And if you don't take serious at the root of it, at the beginning, it will consume you and you will be you have a far harder time dealing with it later. And we see this beautiful trajectory of the church. We're like, oh my gosh, like, look at the church grow. And look, there's, there's over 10,000 people giving their lives over to Jesus. And it's just this little measly sin. Like, really, God? But this shows you the, the care and severity that God cares about his community and where they are moving in their trajectory and that sin is not going to take foothold in his kingdom. And I think about that in our church today, like, like how many churches are just rampant with sin in such a way that, that just no one cares. It's just like, well, like I, I get that we're all sinners, we're in need of God's love and grace, but like we just don't even care. We're just like, well, it's just who we are, right? We just sin and whatever. Like God does care. And and in the same way that, that here we have a severe reaction to sin by God, I think at the end of the day, like, like it's, it's actually really important that we see this. I remember when Sarah and I first moved here to Columbus, we were figuring out where we wanted to plant a church. We had no idea. We'd never been to Columbus before. Um, all that I knew was Ohio State was kind of a big deal. And people like, you know, they're Buckeyes, even though they're poisonous, which is weird. But, uh, and we moved here. We drove around, we drove around all the city, all, all over. We're like, where, where's God calling us to? We realized pretty quickly it was Grandview for several reasons. And we started, I started to pray, like, I started to pray a prayer of revival for Grandview. I was like, Lord, let, let there be revival in Grandview. Let there be revival in people's hearts. And I grew up in a conservative church. Revival was like, it was, it was like a curse word. We didn't use the R word. Um, because it typically implied some sort of like charismatic thing, right? You're conjuring up people falling over on mattresses and all this crazy stuff, right? Like my church was like, no, nah, we don't want anything to do that. So revival for me gave me a little bit of trepidation. But I started studying. I read this book by uh, Richard Lovelace. It's called um, The Dynamics the Dynamics of a Spiritual Life in Evangelical Theology of Renewal. Tim Keller did the foreword. It's a really great book. 455 pages. It's a thick, thick book. I read that thing. I just ate that thing up. It was so good. And it talked about revival in such a way that was so honoring and biblical and historical. And so then, before I know it, after I read that, I start studying all these revivals. I start studying Jonathan Edwards. I start studying Hernhart. I start studying all these different places where revivals took place. And I'm like, I want that in Grandview. And we want that in Grandview. We want that in people's hearts. And I start prayer walking that. And I start praying that. We still pray that. David prayed that this morning uh, in our production meeting. It would be revival in this area. And, and when I'm talking about revival, what I'm specifically meaning, just, over, just painting in broad strokes here, Lots of people coming to Jesus in light of, in light of 
the freedom that he gives them, right? Like seeing a serious movement of people coming to Jesus. And, and in our community, and, and, and I, there's this quote that he, he says, and he, he goes through a historical account of all these revivals. He goes through tons of revivals. They have all these different things. What occurred in all these revivals that we can kind of use as a checklist or like a bullet point list or that we see occur so that these things happen? And obviously, at the end of the day, it's always the Spirit's power moving. But what are the things that led up to that? And some of them are these crazy, just like days of prayer. People stand up all night praying for people and crazy things happen. Or some of them are these preaching tours, right, where they go and they just drop these awesome bombs of truth on people and, and, and people come to Christ. But what he says, true revival always comes from its keenness in penetrating defense mechanisms, uncovering hidden sin, and leading people, Christians and unbelievers alike, to repentance. Penetrating defense mechanisms, uncovering hidden sin, and leading people to repentance. He quotes John Owen saying, the vigor and power of the spiritual life depends on the mortification or the killing or subduing of sin. You going to find that in Barnes and Nobles or on Kalov? Probably not. And I remember reading one about Jonathan and words, if you've heard of him, like he was an intense guy, okay? Like he's, right? He, he gave this one sermon one time, these people, and they weeped for like hours over their sin. Now, I'm not saying you're going to do that today. I'm, that's not my goal, okay? I don't think we're that heavy right now if I'm judging the room. But they're just weeping over their sin, and in light of that comes this revival. But then, wait a second. We look at the last four chapters of Acts. What occurs? Peter is like, you crucified Jesus, and you need to repent. And people just 180, right? They just flip their lives over. They take serious the weight of sin. I've said this before. I'll say it again. The depth of our understanding that we'll have about Jesus, his love, and his power in the gospel is always correlative to the understanding of the weight of sin in your life. Your life. Always. And and I, I show that, and I, I've, I've done this before with some people, so if you've seen it, you probably already know. But I've shown this before with two graphs. A lot of people, especially in American culture in the West, they live the spiritual life based on this, where they have this, this graph here, and you have, like, Jesus is up here, right? And this is, like, holiness. Okay, this, the, uh, this would be the y-axis. Math nerds are getting excited. And, um, and then the x is just, like, time, right? So this is how we gauge the spiritual life is, you know, you start here, well, you weren't Christians, so you're down here, and then you accept Jesus, and then all of a sudden, you just need to, like, you know, do one of these, right? And then what happens is, like Max, you live your whole life gauging your spiritual maturity and your relationship with God based on how close you are to this line, right? Because Jesus is, like, great, we're called to emulate him, be like him, like, that's our life, right? What happens, though, is several things. One is, like, you have a, you have a bad moment, season, whatever, you start going down, and then not only are you sinning, but then you feel like trash, and then you let guilt and you let shame kick in, and then you believe God is putting that on you, which he's not, putting on guilt and shame, and then you start spiraling, right, or what's even worse is your other friend over here is like living his dream, doing great, and you're like, why aren't I like that? Well, maybe I just need to do what he does, right? Maybe I just need to work at his place, or maybe I just need to like live out the rhythms that he has, or she has, or maybe I need to just kill this part of me, or maybe I start to hate my personality, or I start to hate the trauma that I experienced when I was younger because they don't have that, and they don't have the baggage that I do, right? And it just turns into this wild comparison game where you feel like you say you're free in Christ, but you're only really free if you're, if you're trending upward. Because when you're trending down, you feel like trash because you know there's this like weight that you're living. And this is, this is in some ways the Jewish culture at the time. The Pharisees were in some ways like this. Is if we're, and what the Pharisees did was they set this bar 
Okay, so this is this is I'm going to give you the whole Bible in, in one quick moment here. This is God's law right here in the Old Testament. This was the bar that He created. This was what the Pharisees created. They went above God's law and like we're going to be even better. And then Jesus went even higher than that. The whole Sermon on the Mount. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll never inherit the kingdom of God. That's wild because we're already struggling here. Jesus, why are you doing that? He's doing that because he's saying, you can't do it. You need me. That's the whole point. So this graph sucks, for lack of better words. So what if we thought about it like this, where our priority actually in the Christian walk was to first identify and be aware of our sin. This is a pretty classic term, but like acknowledge you're broken. Acknowledge you're a sinner, right? This is what Peter's doing. You killed Jesus, and you got serious ramifications because of that. And weirdly enough, we start trending downward, which is not what we want, right? That's negative. We don't want that. But in the same way, as we acknowledge brokenness, okay, on this, this side, in the same way, brokenness will always lead, biblically we believe this, to dependence on God. Because the more you realize you're not in control, the more willing you're willing to relinquish it to something or someone else. And in this case, brokenness is just acknowledging you pretty much can't do it on your own and you've made mistakes. Now, as you, the more broken you are, right, the more de- dependent you are, right? Now, this is where the Jesus gap comes in here. And this is where this is, where this is just so much better. If Jesus is the bridge between this, right? He is, he is the reconciler of brokenness to dependence on, G, uh, on God. He gives us, he is, he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only way to the Father and allowing dependence of him. The more we're broken, the bigger the cross becomes and the bigger that we understand Jesus in our lives. Jesus says in Luke 7, he's telling Peter, because all these guys are trying to play this game, and, and this woman starts crying and weeping and anointing his feet, and they're like, what are you doing? Because she's way down here, right? And they're like, she can't hang out with us. She's not up here. And he says, Peter, let me talk to you for a second. He says, yeah. He says, what's up? And he says, hey, there's two people that owed a debt to this guy. One owed $50, one owed 500 The guy forgave both debts. Who experienced a greater level of forgiveness? And he says, well, the one with the massive debt. And he's like, you're right. And then he looks at them and he says, hey, I'm paraphrasing, back off, okay? You all are sinners. You're all in debt. And when we read that passage, what we realize is sometimes we think we're, oh, I'm only $5 in debt. You know, I'm like right here. I'm really not that bad, right? I'm really like, eh, I just got a few things to work on. Nothing, a few self-help books can't figure out, right? And, uh, and I'll just get up at 4 a.m., right? <laughs> that fixes everything. Um, go to bed at 8, living the dream. Uh, and you're, you're living here. And you know what? Here's the thing. Like, Jesus is still there. He's still present. He sees you, right? But you start to read that. You start to think about the reality of sin in your life. You start to think about, I don't know about you, over the last few months, I've been thinking about sin in the world, which is shootings and war and just, my gosh, I mean, you can't look with, you can't read without seeing it. And you're like, who's responsible? I mean, humanity is, is a, we're in sin. We are full of sin. Like, it is around us. And the more that I see that, I don't get cynical, right? You don't just become this weird, like, obsessed with the negative, right? But on the same way, you're, you're, you're acknowledging that, like, unless I'm here, I'm not going to see the need for Jesus in great ways. And that's why he says, blessed are those in the Beatitudes. His first sermon to a public group of people is, blessed are those who are not doing well, right? Who are poor in spirit, who mourn, who are cultural outcasts. Those are the people who inherit the kingdom of God because they see their brokenness, they acknowledge it. It doesn't mean they're okay with it. 
doesn't mean you're just like, well, sin is sin. No, they see it, they acknowledge it, and in light of that, they see a Jesus who actually does leaps and bounds for them. He's not just an add-on, he's not just a carry-on, but he is literally everything for them. And, and, in this, and, and I'll tell you, this story of Ananias and Sapphira, you ask, is it, is it necessary for death? I think it depends on how big of a deal you think sin is. If you think that sin is not a big deal at all, and it's like, eh, it's whatever, it's bad, but it's not really that bad, and like, whatever, right? Then you think, yeah, that was unnecessary. But if you've understood the weight of sin in the world, and you understand how severe it is, and you believe that God can be the judge of sin, and removing it, and allowing for shalom, and restoration, and, and beauty in the lives of those who want it, it has to be removed. And in this instance, God is showing us, I think, one, like, I'm in charge, and I call the shots, which is really hard for us in a Western world to, to, to get behind. But two, he's also saying, look, sin matters, but I matter more. Like, sin matters, but I matter more. And so when we read this story, I, I don't have a great answer. I mean, I think it is a little extreme. But I also didn't write the Bible, and I'm also not God. And what I know and what I learned from this is this is what causes people, like I said in the first verse, 4.13, what was people's views of Christians? This is what caused them. They're like, I don't want to dare to be around them, but I respect them and what they're doing and the fruit of what they're doing. And I think when we look at that, that is, is where we have to land. So, you know, you ask yourself, do I have any sin that is hidden? Do I have sin that I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm playing games in my head, I'm downplaying it. Do I have things I need to confess? Do I have sin that's affecting the community? Am I taking serious the way to sin? Do I, do I have any fear or reverence for God and His holiness? I find it interesting if you read the next verse, verse 12, real quick as I close. Right after that, it says, like, you know, they're, they're, everyone in the church is, like, standing up, like, oh, my gosh, like, I don't want that to happen to me. Fear grips the church. What happens after that? Now, many miraculous signs and wonders came about among the people through the hands of the apostles. God just starts doing awesome things in light of everyone around there, like, purging this out, and then that it can keep moving forward in the trajectory he wants for them. Verse 13 is where I was talking about. None of them dared the rest to join them, but the people held them in high honor. Okay, that's, wow, that's, wow, the, 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 the sin, we think the sin is scary and nobody's going to want to be a part of them, right? The bar is way too high. And then read the next verse, verse 14. More and more believers in the Lord were added to their number, crowds of both men and women. How does it make any sense? No one dared to join them. Everybody is joining them. What is going on here? What, it, what is occurring because if you don't really agree with the posture, I think it's a little harsh. Like, I don't think people should not dare to join us. But then you look at, okay, but the next verse, all of a sudden all these people are joining them. What's going on here? Here's what's going on. The weight of following Jesus scared off a lot of nominal, apathetic people. And the only people who were left were the people who were truly committed. And, and what we see in this is tons of people come to Jesus in this moment, in this time, because they realize, I've been playing this, I've been, I've been living on this, or I've been playing this shallow game where I'm not acknowledging what God is truly wanting and doing in my life. And, and to kind of close this and wrap this all up, I, I think about, like, the church is weirdly this place where people acknowledge our brokenness and our sin. And, and in this moment, like, people are like, I don't want anything to do with that, right? I don't want anything to do with that. But at the end of the day, I think this is so beautiful and encouraging because if you're here and you don't have it all figured out, you're here and you're like, man, this is heavy. Father's Day, Trey, come on. Like, if you're here and you're like that, 
I, I just want to encourage you that we have all been there and we are all still there. Like, there isn't a day that goes by that I don't have to remind myself, like Max was saying, I wake up and say, do I believe that God truly loves me? Not only that, that he likes me. Not only that, that he wants more than anything, like Adam said, just to be, just to be around me for a little bit. Like, just for me to, like, acknowledge him, right? Do I believe that? And then in light of that, what are the things that's getting away, what are the things that's separating me from that relationship? And it's sin. It's what it is. If we want the shalom that God provides, if we believe in the kingdom, if we, if we are enticed and compelled by Jesus' kingdom, we got to get rid of sin. we got to take it serious. And Jesus is not, um, I think God is incredibly patient. We know that to be true. And, and so I would just say this. Sin, sin is, is a big deal, but God is a far greater deal. I think one of the most tangible ways to describe that is, you know, there's been times where I've sinned in my life, and I'm really nervous to go, like, tell the person or, like, ask for forgiveness or whatever. And one time a mentor said to me, oh, boy, Trey, you think talking to that person, you, th- you think you hurt that person. Imagine how God feels. And I said, well, I, I feel like God's forgiving, right? And like, oh, absolutely. But it doesn't mean that sin's not still a big deal. And, and so I've told people this, and I don't have a right answer, and I think it's part of the tension of following Jesus. But there is, the, there is this paradoxical beauty of I want to know the weight of sin, but I also want to know more that I'm loved. Like, when I struggle, I want to know that sin is real, and that it causes problems and brokenness, and it separates me from God. But all of that sin does nothing it does not remove my status of love from God. It does not stop God from loving me. It does not, does not cause him to withhold love from me. We see that in the story of the prodigal son where he just runs off and he comes back and the father's not like, you're an idiot, you screwed up, but I'll let you back in. And he runs out in his cloak in the mud and hugs him and gives him a ring and says, you're my son. You've always been my son. And so for many of us, if you're letting sin make you feel guilty, you are living, you're living a faith that's like this. And I just want to encourage you right now, don't do that. It's going to make you feel even more, more just enshamed and, and shackled and slaved to sin. There is freedom in this. There is freedom in this. And so as we close, I want to invite the band up. We're going to play one more song. Um, but I want to give you a good illustration of this. Uh, it's funny, when, when, when I was uh, talking with the elders a while ago about this series, and you know, we were talking about we're uh, trying to become financially supportive sustained on our own in uh, one more year. We have one more year. And they're like, well, are you going to talk about, you know, money series at all? And I said, well, I don't know, maybe. We're just, we, I feel like money is all throughout the Bible. We'll talk about it. And I, I said, this is a great week to talk about money. And then I started studying for it, and I was like, I got so much other stuff to talk about than money in this story. I don't know about you, but I was like, sure, money's there. But uh, but I, I was reading this, and I was just thinking, like, you know, about this this week. And Sarah and I had this moment this week that God just totally, you know, sometimes he does this. He just, like, gives you this moment where it just hits you. We've been thinking about praying about some different people that we felt like we need some support, some money and, and stuff. And so we're praying about that. And we're like, ah, oh, you know, we, we've had these other goals. We've been spending money in this area. We don't know if we have it, whatever. Then we get a check in the mail from a friend for, for a lot of money. Uh, and they're like, hey, we sold our house. We made a lot of money. We just felt like we were praying about it. We feel like you need this. Then I look at Sarah and then I'm like, all right, well, we want to do these other things. Like, and, and now we get to do it, right? And the phrase that I, we've, I've used before is we were ruined by generosity. Ruined in a good way, right? Like, man, when you experience a check in the mail like that, it's hard to not want to do that for other people because you know how it feels, you know the weight of it, right? And then you go do it. And many of us, I think, in this story, like, we realize, like, that that had this not been removed, there would not be moments for the church's trajectory to experience true generosity 
and a true heart change in their lives. And for us, it, it was so like funny because we almost had to receive God's love in, in this way before we realized that we could do it. And, we, and, and now we're doing it out of a heart of just generosity and humility and brokenness. And like, we couldn't do this thing that we really wanted to do. And then God was like, here you go. And now we can do it. And I think for many of us, sin causes us to feel like, yeah, I'm just stuck, and, and, I, and I, I want to do this. I, w- I want to follow God, but I'm just stuck, and, I, and I, I need this moment. And I just want to encourage you, like, God is, God is just in the midst of, of your sin, and he's calling you to follow him. And I, I just think, like, that story for us was just a reminder of when we really think we're stuck, when we really think we can't do things, when we really feel like we're just, we're just stuck, like God is present and God is there. So we're going to sing one last song. Um, we also have a time of reflection that we do every week, and so uh, there's communion up front and in the back. You can partake in that. Uh, we also have people in the back who would love to pray for you. We'll give you some time, and then we're going to close in one more song. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.